0: Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason Now, on with the show.
1: Thank you for joining us. I'm Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University's Anson Scalia Law School. NSI was founded four years ago to fill a significant gap in academia by standing up for robust American national security posture and providing realistic, actionable recommendations to policymakers. To achieve that aim, this year we're focused on two of the most pressing issues in national security, countering China's rise and preserving U.S. technology innovation leadership. Today, we're continuing our conversation on that latter topic, technology innovation in American national security. Although, as you'll see from our conversation with our guest, China has a huge role to play in the issues we're going to talk about today. Today, in particular, we're talking about rare earth minerals. And at the end of February, President Biden signed an executive order focused on protecting America's supply chain. That supply chain executive order included a section focused on rare earth elements and rare earth minerals. In March, the House Armed Services Committee set up a task force focused on examining and identifying vulnerabilities and threats facing the defense industrial base, which includes a threat posed by China over access to rare earth elements. That task force is chaired by NSI longtime guests, Congressman Mike Gallagher and Congressman Alyssa Slotkin, and has a number of other terrific members of Congress. At the same time today, we're excited to have Jeff Green, the president and founder of J.A. Green & Company, to join us for a conversation on the importance of rare earth elements to national security, And what can be done concretely to ensure the U.S. has an adequate and secure supply of rare earths moving forward? Prior to founding J.A. Green & Company, Jeff served as the staff director of the House Armed Services Subcommittee on Readiness and as counsel to the Phil committee's policy staff. Prior to his extensive legislative branch and Pentagon experience, Jeff also served in the Air Force as a missile combat crew commander and retired as a colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserve. In 2018, Jeff, thanks so much for being here with us today. Really appreciate you uh, you joining us. So, you know, talk to us about you know what rare earth minerals are. Why should we care? Why do they matter to us? Uh, what's up with rare earths?
2: Great, uh, thanks, Emil. I really appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, rare earths are something that uh, maybe a decade ago nobody had heard of. Uh, I think the good news in this space is most people have heard of them now, uh, and I think generally in the context of Uh, They're pretty important. We don't use a lot of them, but when we need them, we really have to have them. And the Chinese have a lock on most of the supply chain. I think that's the general narrative. Uh, What they actually are is 17 elements uh, called the lanthanides on the periodic table. If you remember back to your high school chemistry days, uh, it's the second to bottom box on the periodic table. Um, They're organized by atomic weight uh, from light uh, up to heavies. Uh, and I won't even get into naming all the various elements like lanthanum and cerium, and praseodymium, because uh, we could just go down a rabbit hole there.
1: What do they use them for? Like, what do we use them for? Like, why do we? Why do we care?
2: Yeah, so they're they're, you know, originally they were uh, first used way back, I think, in the 1950s. Uh, there was a phosphor called europium that scientists figured out could make television screens uh, display color. Uh, so that was kind of the birth of the the rare earth mining industry historically. Uh, And today, uh, they are prevalent in our economy. I think the iPhone uh, will have eight individual rare earth elements within it. Um, All sorts of uh, consumer electronic applications, uh, phosphors they use for catalysts in the fuel industry, polishing agents. Uh, But maybe most critical to your audience is their their critical applications in national security. Uh, I like to say that uh, the rare earths, whether we're talking about uh, rare earth magnets, metals, or alloys. It's probably harder to find a defense system that doesn't have them uh, than okay. it
1: is to find one that does. But here's the thing, Jeff. I mean, as I understand it, we, you know, we've we used to have a lock on rare earths. We used to be the primary producer, um, you know, up through the '80s, maybe even the early '90s. Like, what what happened? How did how did China get the jump on us? And how far behind are we as a nation in terms of uh, being independent of China when it comes to rare earth uh, uh, minerals?
2: Yeah, so I think you're referring to uh, the the once uh, almost global dominance of the Mountain Pass mine in California, uh, yeah. known as Molycorp way back when, now being reborn as MP uh, Materials. Yeah, they just went through a SPAC, didn't they? One of these uh, big IPO transactions. They did a very very yeah. successful SPAC yeah. uh, after a, a very painful bankruptcy of their predecessor, and we talk a little bit about that. But you know, I think to answer your question. Uh, Pretty simply, the demand for rare earths has rapidly increased. Uh, There's been a significant increase in the use of things called uh, rare earth magnets or neodymium iron boron magnets, uh, a magnet technology that was generated, you know, 30 or 40 30 or 40 years ago uh, and now is prevalent in everything. And as we get into electrification of motors, um, wind turbines, all these high tech applications that require actuator motors, Uh, you're seeing a huge growth in the demand for these materials. At the same time, you've got tightening environmental regulations uh, in many parts of the U.S. uh, and very lax mining standards in places like China. China has a a real um, advantage as far as it comes to rarest simply in the ground. So plenty of rarest in the ground, lax environmental standards, low uh, labor uh, standards. And all of a sudden, you've got a global competitiveness issue where the Chinese can just uh, simply
1: outperform yeah. Uh, the former U.S. market. Yeah, and and so is is the issue uh, here one of environmental regulations? Is that one of the challenges? Is it is it just they can just do it a lot cheaper and just ship it a lot further? Um, as I that understand, that rare earths are not actually that rare, right? They they exist in a lot of places. They're just hard to get at. They're hard to refine, and um and there may be sort of legal and, and other challenges, economic challenges. Is that is that about right?
2: Yeah, I think I think the answer isn't really simple. I think it's a number of those things. So certainly environmental regulations, labor costs uh, are a huge driver in this. Um, Technology and the technological know-how and how to do this is also a key thing. I mean, you know, certainly from where you sit uh, in an academic institution, right, we just don't invest in developing rare earth scientists or haven't over the last 20 years uh, where the Chinese have become the global leader uh, in the technology. And I think it's very difficult these days to get back into the rare earth business without uh, the technological assistance of the Chinese. They just have such a, a lock on so many steps of the, the supply chain. But workforce right. is, is a huge one, and it's actually one that isn't
1: talked about very much. Interesting. So, you know, the, um, uh, the, the Trump administration did a lot of work on rare earths and they had a lot of uh, active efforts, uh, the Department of Defense, uh, and, and other entities within the government. Uh, but now the Biden administration, uh, came out with an EO on, on rare earths. Uh, what does the EO do? Uh, is, is it, is it going to be effective? Um, what, what's going to come next in your mind out of the Biden administration if you were a betting man?
2: Yeah. So I think to put it in just a a touch broader context, I mean, I think the evolution and the awareness around this issue all leads up to the answer to your question, which is what's next. So if you go back, you know, six or seven years, uh, the Obama administration actually had a policy that said rare earths aren't uh, critical to national security. They are not, uh, which seems just stunning when you fast forward, you know, uh, five or 10 years. Uh, But that was based on the fact that DOD wasn't a large consumer of the materials. You could buy them on the market and there hadn't been any disruption to DOD. The Trump people uh, turned that on its head. They said they are critical to national security. You saw people like Under Secretary of Defense uh, for acquisition and sustainment, Ellen Lord, very aggressively talk about it for four years. We have to break the Chinese lock on rarest. They are critical in the supply chain. Numerous executive orders in the last administration. 13806 is probably the biggest one. That was a a very deep dive into the industrial base with a bunch of recommendations, uh, including five presidential determinations or pieces of paper signed by the president saying, hey, we need to invest in these five steps of the rare earth supply chain. Right. What we've seen with the Biden administration, and I think is is a great credit to them, uh, it wasn't a reverse to the previous Democratic administration. It was an advance to the next step of this process. Okay. Where they actually, com- you know, my view, they combined a series of interesting uh, supply chain problems, whether that was pharmaceuticals or semiconductors or PPE, uh, but also critical minerals and specifically their right. earth. So they're taking 100 days, uh, starting in February. I think February 24th is the date of the executive order. They're yeah. going to review this through Commerce, uh, DOE, Department of Defense, HHS, and in my view essentially simply validate what the prior administration did identify actionable next steps and ask for recommendations yeah. to inform this over the next few years. Uh, so what's next, you know, we're going to see, I think the first thing will be a, a revalidation of that statement, where it's a critical national security. Um, yeah. and then hopefully we get into investment trade measures, environmental, you know, potentially environmental, uh, changes to help the mining industry do it in a productive and safe
1: way. Right. Um, but there's a lot that's going to happen in the next two to three years on this issue. So it's your sense that the Biden administration will sort of uh, continue the view of the Trump administration that that these are critical national security uh, um, and and will sort of double down on the effort to really try and build a domestic supply chain. As we've learned from uh, the history over just the last year um, with PPE and the like from China in the context of COVID, right, we recognize now that supply chains are, are a critical issue. And in this area where there's national security application, it's your sense the Biden administration will continue down that road. Is that, is that a fair, fair assumption?
2: Yeah, well, you know, Jamil, I do I do a lot of politics uh, for my day job as well, so I'm careful about how I frame this. Right. Uh, so I won't say that the Biden administration will do the same thing as the Trump administration. I, I think what the Biden people will do is, is stick to their Build Back Better uh, campaign right. promise, and it, it's fortunate in our view that that parallels kind of the same view that the Trump folks had right. on this. So I think the Biden folks yeah. will move this forward, uh, I think mining regulation is a potential area where they'll differ. Uh, there's the politics between Republican and Democratic administrations are, are different. Right. Um, but the acknowledge, two, two major acknowledgements uh, uh, by this administration and the last, and they're very different from when I first started looking at this over a decade ago. Yeah. Back when I first looked at earths in the 2008-9 timeframe, you couldn't mention the word China and you know, describe them as near peer competitor, as a threat, uh, you know, as, as an adversary, that's right. all changed now politically, and I think that right. opens the floodgate for real policy reform in this area because you have to acknowledge the national security threat associated with the supply chain dominance. So we're seeing that in rarests and across a number of other supply chains as
1: well. Makes sense. So, um, so you know, obviously, you, you're, you're sitting there with the Capitol in the background. Um, you know, uh, there's also been a lot of motion you know, effort up on, up on the Hill. Uh, we've seen a number of bills introduced, a lot of action in the NDAA. Talk to us about what's happened on the Hill, what's likely to happen, what are the big bills we should be watching out for, um, you know, and, and how, should, how is Congress thinking about this issue?
2: Yeah, I think, I think up until now, uh, Congress uh, does what it often uh, does, or Congress has done what it often likes to do, which is admire a problem to death. Like, they've really studied the heck out of this issue over the last decade Uh, I think you probably find a dozen references to to Congress saying, hey, this is important. Go and study it and tell us. Well, I think we're past that point now. Uh, We've seen some really actionable things. Um, One of the the most impactful, I think, in the defense world uh, is a a prohibition from the FY, uh, I think it was 19 National Defense Authorization Act that says no longer is DOD allowed to use rare earth magnets, uh, tantalum and tungsten that's processed or produced in China. Right. So those mm. Chinese uh, magnets need to come out of DOD weapon systems or rather they can no longer go into DOD weapons. Right. If well, weapon they had to come system, out, we'd be in a, We'd be in a world of hurt. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. Don't 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 mistake it. They don't even come out. Right. We don't want a, a Huawei type scenario, but uh, uh, we can talk about going forward. You're no longer allowed right. to use them in the last NDAA. And it was a very little notice provision. Um, what what is codified at 10 U.S.C. 2533 C was yep. modified. And it actually okay. includes a phase in over the next five years that will remove all rare earth elements uh, out of the defense supply chain. And that goes all the way back to the mine. That's hugely significant, particularly when you consider the fact that today uh, we have MP materials who producing a concentrate uh, out of their mountain pass mine. But goes to China. Because there's no one else to process it. Right? right? And I know MP gets beat up quite a bit about that. Well, they sell all their material to China. And, and look, I've said it too. But yeah. it's true, right? If they want to be a viable business, they have to sell it to the customer. And these separation technology today is in China. Yeah. They're trying to open their processing facility uh, in California so they don't have to export it. Uh, Linus also trying to open a greenfield operation in Hondo, Texas to separate right. RARIS on U.S. soil. Is this, and this is the Australian effort, right? The joint U.S.-Australian effort? I- exactly, exactly. Right. And, and both of those companies, you know, arguably the leaders in non-Chinese production, or call it Western world production right now, mm-hmm. Both got significant sums from the Department of Defense in the last year through the
1: defense production. Got it, got it. And uh, so, so there's so there's stuff going on, on the Hill. The administration is doing stuff. Um, but you know, oddly, you know, this is sort of an area where where it's a, it's a defense priority. Um, and yet, the Wall Street Journal came out with an editorial that sort of looked said, "Look, the free market handle this problem. The concerns are overblown." Um, you came out with an op-ed that sort of took the opposite view in defense news. Why? Why isn't? I mean, you know, look. I mean, uh, you know, conservatives are pretty spun up about this issue. They're 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 concerned about China, as are as our Democrats, as is the administration. Um, why is the journal? Um, why does the journal think that this is a uh, a free market solve problem? It looks like the free market has resulted in China having dominance. What what has the journal got wrong? Um, and it, and if you were doing this, what would you what would you correct in their op-ed?
2: Yeah, no, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I've written a lot on this issue. Never have I had such a response as when I decided to try to take on the journal's editorial board because, frankly, I thought they got it wrong. Yeah. I, I mean, they're it,
1: really it, smart. I mean, listen, the Wall Street Journal, I mean, they, and economics, they know this stuff, right? So it's, 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 it's unusual that I that I'd sort of share your view, but I do share your view. But tell me what you think they got wrong.
2: Well, so it was, yeah, I woke up, I looked at my, my uh, calendar and I said, am I back in 2009 or 2010 before the Chinese had asserted uh, their dominance in the supply chain in a geopolitical sense, right? Going, so going back to the 2010 fishing trawler incident where they said, hey, you know, Japan has uh, uh, interfered in our waters. We're not going to ship Uraris anymore, right? That to me is the signal that took it out of the free market space. Right. Right. We're going so to was- use it as a
1: national security
2: sort of cudgel. To to say it mildly, right? And that kind of woke up the world and and folks like me looking at this saying, hey, they really have a lock here. If they choose to assert it, that could be very dangerous for national security. And what I think the journal did is they returned to that view with some of the the arguments that we would seen over many years. Oh, well, there's lots of rarests in the marketplace. You know, China's production is on the decline. So other producers are rising. So the market's doing what the market will do. And it's going to sort it all out. But when you peel back the onion layer, you know, look at that first argument. Well, China's production is on the decline. Well, sure, uh, they may be separating fewer rare earth oxides because companies like Linus and MP are getting into the game, but they're actually slated to be a net importer of materials. But that's not the scariest part. The part that I really uh, am troubled by is the journal ignores the fact that they can produce less rare earth oxides and view that as a win. But when you look at the supply chain and China has almost a 100% lock on the production of rare earth metal and a huge production advantage in rare earth alloys and the vast majority of rare earth magnet production, you start to say, well, wait a minute, this isn't such a great story because you have to go through each step of those, uh, each of those steps on the supply chain to actually get a product into the hand of the consumer or the department of defense. So, you know, relying on the free market when the free market isn't working uh, by the rules of the free market, that's the problem. Uh, If you look at the WTO case uh, that the Obama administration filed, right, we adamantly opposed that. And you'd say, well, you know, you were a former GOP staffer, how could you oppose action by the WTO? And the answer was because we looked at it and knew that it gave the Chinese what they wanted, which was an excuse if they lost that case and they were brought to the uh, WTO accused of withholding rares from the market in violation uh, of trade rules. Mm-hmm. They, they lost the case, and sure enough, rares flooded the market. Uh, we know what happens from our basic economics. The pricing goes down and at that time, it really depressed the prices. It challenged our sole domestic producer in Molycorp and lo and behold, they went And pushed to, them out.
1: So, yeah. So yeah. it's
2: just a just a tragic result because you're not looking at, you know, and I, I put it in my op-ed, even Adam Smith said in matters of, Adam Smith, not the chairman of the Hask, right? Uh, but sorry. The, the, the author of the Wealth of Nations, right? Uh, even, even you know, the father of free trade said, "Look, you know, it matters of national security. Uh, all these rules don't apply." And that's where I think the journal yeah. messed
1: up. Yeah. So you mentioned Jeff. You know, you were you were a former House Armed Services Committee staffer. If you if you were back up on the Hill, and your boss said, "Hey, Jeff, you know, what can I do? What's the one or two things I can do tomorrow or get through Congress?" Um, and get to the president's desk uh, that the president would sign, what can I do to be most effective um, to help address what I see you know, as a critical issue? What would you tell your boss if, if you were up on the Hill advising a member today?
2: Yeah, and, and it, when I was there 15 years ago, my answer would have been very different because the issue has advanced so far. Okay. One of the challenges is, as is you, you know and the folks at the National Security Institute know, uh, Congress is really difficult to operate in when you get outside of your specific lane. And, and the challenge yeah. I think of really solving this problem is, and this is where I think DoD was initially reluctant to address it, it's not just a defense issue, it's a broader economic security issue, right? So with defense yeah. being such a small consumer of rare earths, if you really want to solve it, you've got to come up with the economic incentives to really make this market flourish in the commercial market. And to me, that requires government policy that goes beyond what we traditionally do in the National Defense Authorization Act. So one example I give uh, is an con- uh, end-user tax credit, right? So okay. this is an idea that's gaining momentum on the Hill. Right. Uh, if I'm a producer of materials, if I'm a large global multinational corporation trying to compete head-to-head with China and countries that don't have these type of rules or concerns about supply chains, how do I compete if I'm forced to use domestic supply chains for rares and other critical materials. And mm-hmm. our answer to that is, well, they should be rewarded and incentivized for doing that. Create the right. marketplace. Yes, it's an artificial marketplace, but the actions of our adversaries have forced us to look at those type of trade tools uh, right. and, and market adjustments to make sure that we use it. So one, one issue, I think we're going to look at very hard this year, is a tax credit that would not go to the producer of the materials Mm -hmm. but someone who came forward and said, Hey, I'm going to make a a new defense system or I'm going to make a clean energy system, but it's going to be wholly domestic critical materials. You should get a tax credit for that. Okay.
1: What else? What, what other would, so tax credits for, 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 uh, for consumers of of these or, or, or uh, manufacturers who use the, use domestic production. Um, What other, what other things might we, might we be thinking about that, that, but a, uh, would be effective, uh, but B also have a snowball's chance and whatever uh, to get through a you know bipartisan effort in Congress, get to the president's desk, and get a signature. Yeah, so I think I think that is
2: a continuation of what the Trump administration started, and what I okay. hope the Biden administration will continue doing, and that's more Defense Production Act investment. Okay. Um, so the administration and the administration in place now, I think, are going along the right path of saying, look, we need to address each step of the rare supply chain, and they done that to start. They've invested in light rare earth separation and heavy rare earth separation. Both Linus, the Australian company, and MP, uh, the Mountain Pass mine, have received uh, pretty significant funding to establish domestic production of heavy rare earth and light rare earth oxide. That's terrific. Um, At the other end of the supply chain, the magnet production end, uh, Urban Mining Company, a company that we work with, Uh, received Mm -hmm. a significant grant from DOD to establish their domestic neodymium iron, boron magnet recycling technology. So that's going to be commercialized. There's some gaps. Uh, One gap is the metal and alloy segment of the supply chain. We don't have a single domestic rare earth metal uh, and we have very nascent uh, rare earth alloy producers. We need to bolster that capability. I always say we have have a minimum capability to meet our national security needs. And then the last step is investment in innovation. So I talk a lot about, uh, solvent extraction and how we use the same separation technology that the Chinese use. And we all know that it's hard to compete with Chinese head to head. The way we generally win in the market is to out innovate. And I think that's where you know we need additional
1: investment in new technologies. Makes sense. Um, so let's just step back for a minute. You talked about the fact that we don't have a certain sort of domestic producers in certain areas. Um, is the issue that we don't have the, the capacity here? Is the issue that we don't have the minerals here? Or is the issue that simply the economic incentives aren't currently aligned and, and, and maybe Congress or the administration are both working together can align economic incentives to, to, to result in producers undertaking uh, those activities.
2: Yeah. I think, I think the economics are what is really the driver of all this. Okay. So uh, if you look at MP materials, right, they, they bought an asset out of bankruptcy at a you know fraction of the cost of the, right. you know, sunk cost uh, that, of the equipment in the mine that they already bought. So they got it in a fire sale They've done a great job bringing it back to producing rare earth concentrate. To take it the next step uh, to produce high purity rare earth oxide is going to be an expensive proposition and a technologically challenging proposition. One, we think that they can achieve, uh, but there's certainly going to be a high cost and high risk associated with that. Um, It also will improve the business case because there's much more margin from, you know, going producing concentrate to producing oxide. That's where you can start making money. Where the economics of the supply chain start to fail is when you go from rare earth oxide to metal. There's very okay. little money in making rare, rare earth metal. And I think that's why you don't see anybody doing it today uh, because okay. the margins are so thin. Similarly producing alloy, very technically difficult, thin margin, tough to incentivize companies to do it. But then when you jump the next step to making magnets, that's where you can start making money again. So it's this gap, you know, it's kind of the rare
1: earth valley of death. Yeah. It in the term. You just can't get through that metal and alloy phase to achieve independence. And what's the answer to that? If, if that's if that's the case and the, the margins are just thin, are there are there tax credits, economic incentives that governments can provide or is it just straight up cash? I mean, what is what is the is there an answer to that problem or is it just is it is it potentially unsolvable?
2: Yeah, no, I don't think it's unsolvable. I think I think this is exactly what the Defense Production Act was designed to do. You know, one okay. of the statutory criteria of that uh, bill is that industry cannot or will not fund the investment in the time needed to meet the national security need. And a lot right. of that has to do with cost of capital, return on capital invested. So if a company wants to get into the rare earth metal business, if you've got a large upfront sunk cost, uh, mm-hmm. it takes time to get to economic viability coming out of the other end of that. Right. What EPA really helps is, you know, the government takes a cost share. And it's not the government just handing out money to build these projects. They're traditionally uh, at least a 50 percent initial uh, investment Uh, sought on the industry side, so everybody's got skin in the game, But you bring bring that business case much closer to closing on a much more accelerated timeline, which I think gets us back into the game.
1: Got it. All right. That makes sense. Um, And so, you know, Jeff, as we're talking about all these issues, you know, uh, are there any other things that um, without congressional action, the executive branch could do on its own um, uh, to promote domestic rare earth production?
2: Well, you know, money is always going to be the big one. And and we all know, uh, going back to Civics 101, we need Congress uh, to provide that. Um, Many years ago, as I was was working on the Hill to, you know, put some new regulations into place on DOD, I had a a DOD acquisition official say, don't do that. We as the executive branch have the ability, we can't write statute, we can write regulation all day long. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the department, I thought, uh, has done a great job of taking... The ban on the purchase of Chinese rare earth magnets, and when the regulation was written, it was actually written very strictly. You know, maybe okay. more so than was in the statute. And I thought that was a real indication that the administration believed in the policy and wanted to put some real teeth in it. So the administration has a lot of autonomy uh, in requiring the use of domestic supply chains, requiring domestic rare earths. Uh, you know, they can work that into the contracting process, um, which incentivizes end users to buy uh, domestic rarests, domestic supply chains, uh, and support them. Uh, Because ultimately, as we know in this town, money talks, right? So if the economic incentive to get the consumers of those rarests using them, I think is going to push us over the top. So I keep going back to that tax credit thing as a way that, you know, the prime contractors who don't want to be bothered with this, all of a sudden, if Congress gives them a credit and a financial incentive to do it, I think you'll see behavioral change very quickly.
1: Makes sense. So look, we're obviously really focused on the supply chain issue, uh, but not just in rare earths, but across the board. And there's a lot of talk about onshoring and, 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 and reshoring and ally shoring. Um, what are there any other things we should be thinking about? We're talking about rare earths specifically, um, areas we should be looking at, um, things that we haven't talked about yet uh, that would be important for members of Congress, their staffs, people in the national security community to know or be thinking about uh, as we try to address what is clearly a critical national and economic security issue for us. So I, I, think,
2: I think rare earths are a great example for the broader supply chain security issue. Uh, and we hadn't talked about it yet. Um, the supply chain, uh, excuse me, the House Armed Services Committee's critical supply chain task force uh, has yeah. just been named. It's four Republicans, four Democrats. Um, you know, that group is meeting with industry, talking to folks right now, trying to find ideas. And, and you know, word that I get is uh, rare earths is certainly going to be an important part of that. So we're going to be looking for some type of actionable um, uh, recommendation that comes out of the other end of this that isn't just a study, right? We need to, uh, you know, we need to get to investment. We need to get to uh, moving the issue beyond just defense and national security, Um, you know, and and the levers that Congress has to pull are very limited. So it's going to be really interesting what recommendations this task force makes, Um, but what I can tell you is that if there is a nexus to China and a nexus to national security, uh, that task force is going to take the threat very seriously.
1: Yeah, no, and it's a, it's a, it's a great group of folks, you know, folks like uh, Congressman Mike Gallagher, my former office mate at uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Congressman Mike Waltz, who actually is going to be on with us uh, for uh, NatSec nightcap here in a few weeks. Uh, Chrissy Houlihan and Alyssa Slotkin, both of whom Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman, uh both of whom have been on uh, NSI events. So just a great, it's a great task force. Not to mention Mickey Sherrill, and I mean, what a, what a great crew, and and and, and a crew that's committed really uh, to this issue of protecting American national security. So I think we're looking forward to good recommendations coming out of that uh, out of that group, and I think we'll be working with those members to give them our thoughts. So uh, so Jeff, listen, thanks for being here with us today. Really, really great to have this conversation with you, and really. Uh, important uh, leadership that you're engaged in um, on highlighting this issue for members of Congress and and helping our way forward on what is no question in my mind, uh, a critical national security and
0: economic security issue for us. Thanks, Emil. Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.